Okay, so anyone who knows me, and honestly, at this point, anyone who listens to the podcast, because I guess we've just (laughs) gotten real close around here, knows that I do not wear bras. And like, that's not some sort of an over-exaggeration. You can ask any of my friends. I truly do not ever wear bras. However, there have recently been some circumstances where like, I just have to. I've been saying yes to more things. I feel like we've been going to more events and there are just some outfits. I got to do it. And when I tell you I have finally found a bra that makes wearing one bearable. Like I'm never going to be an everyday bra wearer. It's not in the cars for me. But when I have to, the only bras I can wear are skims, which I'll get into the specific ones in a second, but we all know this comes as no surprise. Like I have been an OG diehard skims fan since day one. I am a fan of every single product they make. You know the way I feel about the underwear, the clothes, all of it. But now adding bras to the mix, specifically the Fits Everybody t-shirt bra, because You guys know the way I feel about the Fits Everybody collection. I could talk about that for forever, but specifically the t-shirt bra, it's just so comfortable. I don't know, the straps don't dig into you. It's probably the only bra I've ever worn where when I get home, I'm not like dying to take it off, which I cannot express how massive of a feat that is for someone like me. It's just comfortable and it just does what it needs to do. And I am such a fan, which like no surprise, I love everything Skims makes, but here to confirm the bras are as good as you would think that they are. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A through 46H. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hi guys, I'm Emma. And I'm Julie. And we're the girls behind Comments by Celebs. And welcome back to another episode. Hey, Jewel. I am. Here's what I want to say about the Demi Lovato documentary. Can I tell you? Oh, wow. Starting off strong. Tell me. <laughs> yes, because I've been thinking about this since I watched it last night. Obviously, I cannot wait to talk about it. However, it is really a damn shame that we record this podcast on Monday and the final part is coming out tomorrow because that is when she talks about Max and the engagement and all of that. And I just know the second after we watch that, we're going to be in pain to have to wait six days to discuss it. You would have thought they would have thought that through a little bit better. I know. I mean, it really kind of screwed us, but the amount of Travis, Courtney, Scott there is just based on that one picture that Chris posted, I feel like we're going to have a lot to say on the Kardashian Easter. I have so much to say about that situation that I genuinely feel like if we didn't have this podcast, I would just combust. The amount of messages we got after we posted that story of people being like, where the fuck is Scott's golf bag, was out of control. I wish more than anything in the whole world I had an answer for them. I know. I don't know, guys. We're just going to figure this out as we go, right? Uh, That's the plan, kid. So as you guys know, every week we're highlighting a Black-owned business. And this week it's called Partake. To be honest, I knew nothing about this company in terms of the origin of it, except for the fact that one day, Julie, Isabel, and I were walking around the West Village and we had gone into this little store and I saw these cookies and I really liked the idea of them because they seemed relatively good for you considering the fact that they were cookies. And when I looked into it, I realized that it was a Black-owned business founded by this woman, Denise Woodward, after her daughter was diagnosed with severe food allergies as a baby. So there's no nuts, eggs, dairy, soy, They have a million flavors. And upon further research, I realized that Rihanna and Jay-Z are both investors. So it's good enough for them. It is definitely good enough for me. And as always, I will put all the information in the description. Okay, you ready, Joel? Let's do it. So we are starting out with part three of Demi's docuseries called Dancing with the Devil. 
as always, I just want to give a trigger warning here for drug addiction and sexual assault and rape. You know, last week we did parts one and two, which were really intense. And this week, again, I will say, I recognize that some people have watched it, some people haven't. So we won't recap fully. We'll kind of just discuss and I guess do a little bit of a recap in that process. But I felt like in this one, we really got to see a lot about the people around her and how the overdose affected them in a way that was a little bit more individualized. Didn't you feel that way? Yeah, this episode definitely seemed more behind the scenes to me. I mean, obviously with the last episode, we were getting the behind the scenes of a specific event that we were so curious about, of course, but we knew some of the background and obviously some stuff had come out in the news and and had been reported on already. This was kind of the stuff that we were really in the dark about and some stuff that we didn't even know happened in the first place, which I thought made for an excellent episode. I did too. And what I thought was unique about this is that we were talking to Danny, who was her former creative director. She had been featured throughout this entire series, but we were really getting to hear more about her story, which we'll get into in a second. But what I thought was a very interesting way of doing things was how they showed her getting ready for this interview and Demi actually coming up while she was in glam and kind of comforting her, talking her through the process. And in a way, it was almost this role reversal that was taking place, whereas Demi was kind of caring for her and helping her tell her story in a way, which I recognized quickly why that was the case. But the way that the shot was set up, I thought, let us in, in kind of just a different a different way. Yeah. It also... I found it to be really helpful to show exactly where their friendship is now. Like the fact that they were in a place where Demi was coming up and comforting her and she was accepting that comfort and they were still, you know, clearly by each other's side, helping each other out. For her to then go into the story of what happened and what happened to her, I thought that showing the friendship and the current state of it helped tell that story so much better. Yeah. it's. I find that a lot in these types of documentaries that when they show little behind the scenes that to them probably seems like just every day and isn't necessarily worth filming for us as the audience, it's giving us such a look that we would never have had otherwise. Right. Exactly. So if you guys remember, you know, when we were talking about this last week, it was her birthday celebration, the night of Demi's overdose. They were all hanging out at Demi's house. And when she left, Demi had asked her to stay. She couldn't, she had to get home to her dogs and her mom was at her house. And she said she really did have this weird feeling about leaving. She didn't think that that was going to happen, but she just did have a weird feeling. And so after Demi did overdose and it came out that she was with Danny that night, Demi's fans and the public kind of really turned on her saying that she was to blame for this and she already had some pre-existing guilt. So the fact that then the public started blaming her really exacerbated that. And you watched her kind of explain what that was like for her in a way where she was a little bit paralyzed with fear because it wasn't her story to tell yet she was being crucified in the process. Yeah, I think that was a huge element of it of it being not her story to tell, but simultaneously being exactly her story to tell and trying to navigate that. It seemed like this was the first time that she had come out and really spoken about what had happened and her involvement or lack thereof. And Demi kind of said, like, I want you to clear your name. So it did seem like the first time where she was really getting on and and clarifying exactly what happened and the fact that she was not involved in Demi's overdose um, so I, I thought that was really interesting, which is the whole idea of 
her having a story to tell, but maybe not feeling comfortable enough to tell it or not feeling like it was her place to tell it. That was definitely what was going on there. It was kind of like, I don't know, a shifting of the narrative or there was really a profound level of respect, not only to Demi, but also to her situation. And they clearly had discussed this before. Clearly, you know, Demi had explained to her that she was going to give her this opportunity because she said, I'm sorry that it's taken me so long. So when you're watching this as the public, all of a sudden, the entire focus is shifting off of Demi for a second and actually talking more directly about how it impacted those around her. And so the way where Demi said, you know, I'm sorry that it took me so long to tell my story. And then by virtue of that, for you to tell yours, you kind of were realizing like, this is so layered. So layered. And that is a deep level of friendship to have with somebody to be able to say, I'm not going to clear my name for the sake of you being able to tell your own story. Yeah, because she spoke about how it wasn't just that it personally really rocked her. Also, it had a huge impact on her professionally because a lot of her clients were dropping her because they just didn't want to deal with the drama that was surrounding her name. And then also she was losing a lot of jobs because parents didn't want their kids going to someone that was deemed as this quote heroin dealer. So I, th- this is the best way that I can kind of describe it. It was almost like she had to bite her tongue for a little while because she knew that eventually she would be able to redeem herself. But that time of when it happened to now must have been painstaking in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'd imagine so. I mean, that was I, – I actually thought that was a really difficult thing to watch because I know that for Demi and a huge part of this episode was just the way that her addiction really affected the people around her and that was such a glaring example of it. And obviously the ability for both of them to speak out and acknowledge what happened was I'm sure a huge part of Demi's recovery. I have to imagine that – There is something incredibly cathartic about feeling as though you are finally liberating somebody who, not you directly hurt, but was hurt by something that happened to you. I feel like that must be a pretty inexplicable feeling to be able to give to someone in a way. It's just an interesting dynamic, yes. It's a dynamic that I don't think we see a lot of. No, because... Because in your regular everyday life, you typically wouldn't run into a situation like that. And also, you know, there is a power dynamic at play when you're dealing with a friend who is also was your employer who also is a mega celebrity. I mean, it's not like you're just clearing your name and it's one of your friends and no one else really knows about the situation. I mean, you are in front of a worldwide audience. You have someone's fans coming at you. And you have someone's story to tell that you can't tell, not just because it isn't your story, but because it's such a public one. So there is always going to be an element of kind of a shift in power or power dynamic when you're dealing with something like this, which is something that most people aren't used to. Yeah. And that is something that is clearly not unique to Demi. This happens with the circles of every A-lister. And I guess we talk about this all the time, forgetting about just this particular circumstance, that relationship and how that comes into play and how so many times the professional relationships then really 
morph themselves into friendships and what that means in terms of real raw honesty. And are those people ever able to be fully honest and really have that same leveled playing field, like a friendship that did not exist one from a professional origin, but also in this megastar setting. And so I felt like, I don't know, it was seeing them interact where Demi was comforting her. I do feel like it flipped the script a little. And I guess I liked watching that play out. Yeah, me too. It also brought up a very interesting discussion, which you and I have often about the role of fans for different celebrities. Oh, and Demi spoke about that very clearly when she said, I absolutely adore my fans, but sometimes they just do too much. And she said, you know, this was really not okay. And I can imagine for her, it was heartbreaking to witness one of her best friends, one of the people closest to her being taken down and being harassed by the people that support her. And they thought that they were doing it to protect her. And she knew that it was not coming from a bad place, but it was like a level of guilt that she was experiencing. Yeah. It's, it, the fan element is always so interesting to me because it, it it's one thing to support the person. It's another thing when you take it to a, a completely different level, like it was taken here, especially with no context or information. I mean, it's never right to do that, but specifically in a situation where you are literally just operating off what you think happened and what the rumors are that happened to blow it up to that proportion is just, it's really crazy. Management was also a huge part of this episode because she really said that after the overdose, one thing that she was certain about was the fact that she wanted new management. And Scooter Braun was the really the only person that she wanted to meet with. And when they brought him on and he was saying how at the time, you know, he fully went into that meeting expecting to say no because he had too much on his plate. He didn't think that he was capable of bringing on somebody, specifically somebody as big as Demi. And he actually was talking about how so much of their internal conversation between him and his team was how they were going to gracefully decline. And then after the meeting, it was evident that she didn't only need a manager, she really needed a friend. And saying no to her after she basically poured her heart out was not something that he was even considering doing. He also said something really interesting when he was talking about like what Demi needed. When he said she didn't need a manager, she needed a friend, but she also needed somebody who's career and monetary income wasn't solely based on her. So he was saying like she was he was able to give her the time that she needed because it wasn't like he needed to force her to get back into making music and putting out projects. And that was a huge huge element of it. Basically, yeah, somebody that was capable of playing the long game because that 10% or however much it was was not the sole thing that was keeping them going. So, when you have Ariana Grande and Justin Bieber and other incredibly successful clients, you can afford for Demi Lovato to sit out and work on her mental health and what she needs to work because she's not your immediate meal ticket. Is essentially what was being said there in a far more eloquent way they said it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, listen, I know obviously people have a lot of mixed opinions on Scooter. I thought though the way he handled this or at least the way both he and Demi portray him in this part of the documentary was handled like with so well and with so much grace. Well, my thing about it is like, I was far more interested in the way that she spoke about him than the way that he spoke about it. Of course, I thought it was just unique to hear from his perspective, but I clearly trust what she was saying in that moment and how she felt because it's one thing for him to say, you know, I wanted to 
make her known that she, that I was going to be a friend and all of those things. But then to hear her say, that's actually what she felt and that that's was accurately how she was receiving it. That's the part that I care more about. Yeah, definitely. And the part where that really came to light is when she's talking about how she relapsed and she said that it was, I think two weeks or so after she had gotten out of the hospital and a week after, I think it was the night or the day after she had left her week-long intensive care for overdose trauma, that she had relapsed again. And she had ended up admitting that to Scooter, being like, before we sign, I I have to tell you this. And she was like, I was so certain he was going to drop me. And instead, he said to her, like, I'm more worried about the fact that if I that if I don't sign you, you're going to end up in the wrong hands. Which I think was a very honest thing to say, quite frankly, because as sad as this is, and this is more so just a statement about our world, I guess you could really specify it to the music industry and just like the Hollywood industry in general. But that level of rawness and that level of broken that she was after specifically the second relapse a lot of people would look at that and think that it was really advantageous to actually get close to her because they could really use it to their benefit. And so I think he was spot on in saying that. It's the unfortunate reality, but I think that it's true because so many people would actually thrive off of that. You're right. There are people that are either going to be advantageous for that or there are people that are going to say, this is way too much and I we cannot take this on and we cannot deal with it and we cannot be somebody that, that can help you. And that second option is something that I think at the time she would have said, or even in retrospect, she would have said, okay, I can understand that. Like I, this was not, I I think that she was not expecting to be able to rebuild her career with a new team the way she had, especially after admitting to the second overdose. Cause even Scooter said that where he was like, I was so shocked because I, I saw her after the first one. And she was like, I just thought that after that experience, it would never, ever happen again. So that was a really raw, open moment as well. It was. And I think, you know, it would have been a very probable thing, like you said, for somebody to kind of leave in that moment. But what that would have done, in my opinion, would have really deepened that fear of abandonment that she's had for a very long time. And she spoke about this in general, starting with her dad, you know? And so the fact that he stayed and they were able to work through it together, I think was even more healing than she could have have known in the moment. And then when they were interviewing her case manager and he was saying how oftentimes when you care about somebody so much and they relapse in a way where it's so upsetting and so scary to you, the initial knee-jerk reaction is like, how could you do this? How could you have put yourself in a situation? And that's coming from a place of deep care and compassion. But really, it's more so where it should be the, wow, you must have been in so much pain to do that. And so on some level, even though it wasn't conscious, I think for management to kind of take that second approach was huge for her. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that whole concept of like, how could you have done this to yourself or how could you do this to us is the side of the effect of addiction that is probably the hardest to understand when you're the person closest to the person that is suffering from addiction because you can't fathom what it is like for them to 
to from your perspective to do this to you or do this to themselves and when in reality it's just the power of addiction is so strong and so overwhelming that it almost it leaves you without the ability to make those rational choices and that's such a difficult thing for somebody who isn't an addict to even begin to understand yeah it's very also hard for people to decentralize themselves from the narrative you know right of course i mean on topic, but off topic was, I don't know if you saw this, but Hunter Biden's interview where he's talking about his addiction. And he was basically saying, he was like, I was so addicted to crack cocaine that like there was one day where my dad broke down in my arms and he was like crying, saying that he didn't know what to do. And he was like, the only thing I was thinking while my dad was crying in my arms was how I was going to get high again. He was like, I don't think anybody can understand the power of addiction until you understand that like to me, the most powerful force in the world is like a family's love. And the only thing more powerful than that is addiction. Mm -hmm. No, it's true. The other thing about this is that once you learned more about the story, you realize that potentially part of the root of her relapse, because that happened after she had left the week-long intensive trauma program. And it was that day that she called her dealer. And remember, this is the dealer that raped her the night of her overdose. And Part of the motive in her calling him, yes, he had drugs that she wanted, like she said, but it was more so the fact that she wanted to reclaim the power. She wanted to take it back. And so she calls him and said, no, I'm going to fuck you. And of course, she reflects on how that didn't help anything and that only made it worse. But in the moment, there was definitely a little bit of a mix between her desire for drugs and then also her trauma from the sexual assault. So once you realize how intertwined the two were, you can understand how the abandonment would have probably felt even more painful. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I think that her saying, I would love to say that the last time I used heroin was the overdose, but it wasn't, was the craziest revelation because I don't think anybody realized that. And then for her to get into the details of what actually happened following that and you know, her trying to, quote, reclaim the power and then her connecting that back to doing the same thing during the Disney days when she talks about how she was sexually assaulted then and how she actually lost her virginity in a rape and she tried to do the same thing back then with, quote, reclaiming the power. That was, I mean, the connection between those two things were so obviously glaring. Right, and to say all of that, in the course of a one 25 minute episode. And then to say on top of that, and she says, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to say it. Here's my me too story. I did tell about what happened and nothing changed. So it, there was just so much happening here. It was a lot for a 20 minute episode. I will say that definitely. Right. And this is her life. I mean, when it flashes back to her interview on some red carpet. She was literally 16 years old with Chris Harrison. And he's saying to her, you know, well, how do you know about heartbreak? What, what could you have possibly gone through? And she's like, you know, shockingly, I've actually been through a lot in my 16 years. And when you're watching that clip with the knowledge that you have now of what was going on for her in the Disney days, you're kind of like looking directly into her eyes and you can see the pain in a way where if you don't have that knowledge, you're not nearly as tuned into that. Right. And showing those videos of the Disney days of her basically, you basically understand that now in retrospect, she was trying to signal something or explain something without coming out and saying it. And you can see how badly she just wants to be like, this is what happened to me and she can't. And that I thought was such an interesting element of the story was 
her not coming out and saying anything because of kind of the clean image of Disney and saying like, I just came forward as one of the Disney members saying, I'm going to wear a promise ring and I'm going to save myself from marriage. And even though I was raped, how is this going to look to everybody else? Because are they going to see it that way? Are they going to understand the difference between I I didn't choose for this to happen this way? And that I thought was so, so important to understand because the narrative of the Disney days and the promise rings and having this clean image was such an integral part of Disney and something that I think that maybe you and I probably didn't grow up realizing the extent of. And so I think neither of us particularly were raised in a way where we could understand that thought process. But the vast majority of Disney watchers and parents who are letting their kids watch Disney most likely would have had that thought process. Oh, when she was saying how not being able to come forward because people would not be able to separate the f- idea of her having sex to her being raped and how regardless of how it happened, she still had sex. So she still broke the quote promise. That was a level of pain that I really, I couldn't comprehend it. My heart really broke for her when she was reliving that. I just couldn't stop thinking about the 16 year old girl that was then having to carry what was she felt to be shame, even though of course there was nothing to be shamed of it based on this image that was curated around her. So then all of a sudden she, as this victim, as the survivor, becomes in her mind the wrongdoer based on how she would have been perceived. That is really like royally fucked up. Beyond so. And I do, you know, now that I'm thinking about it and now that we're talking about it, I do think that the ownership or protectiveness that our generation specifically feels over celebrities which is something that we talk about a lot. It's very different now than it was a couple of years ago. And so much of that has to do with social media and the ability to connect with other fans. But I do think the root of that is probably a lot of the ownership that we were made to feel over our Disney celebrities because we know how controlled they were and we know the image that they had put out. And we were made really super aware of the personal lives of the celebrities that we grew up with and being told to model after these people and being told that they were such good role models that anything they did that stepped outside of that was deemed to be such a disappointment. I think that a lot of people that probably shaped the way that they view celebrities now. Yes. And as you get older, there's a real moment, I think specifically as it applies to child stars, when that veil is lifted and you're seeing behind the curtain and you're recognizing that that image that was so perfectly and carefully curated to appeal to you, you as a child, and to maintain this sense of like purity among you, once you recognize what was actually happening, it's this real kind of like awakening. And I know for us it happened years ago, but you just have this realization that you didn't have at the time. Right. And I think that that transforms when you get older from the celebrity that needs to have the ultra clean image to the celebrity that needs to be modeled after my own view of them. And therefore anything they do stepping outside of my own view, even if it's not the clean element of it, just what they expect of celebrities and what people expect of the people they quote stand now or the celebrities they dislike, that sense of ownership is probably very much rooted in the fact 
of the way we felt about celebrities in the Disney days. And it's just taken on a completely different shape now because our expectations of what we want from our figures is so much different now. But I don't think that sense of ownership has really changed. No, it hasn't. I, it's, I mean, that's a whole other conversation that I feel like you and I randomly get into a lot. I, yeah. I mean, it's just so interesting to me, but I don't think I saw the possible connection between the Disney element of it and our generation growing up with those stars and how our generation reacts now. Demi is such the manifestation of that, really. Absolutely. And that's why also going into a different area of that, the Hannah Miley thing worked so well because she was able to keep the squeaky clean image of Hannah and then Miley, who was a completely different person, was able to do whatever she needs to do. Obviously, at the time, there was that period in between where she was so harshly judged and so harshly scrutinized for everything she did. But coming out the other end of it, she was able to really separate like, Hannah was your child star, and now I'm Miley. I just do wonder if there was any other stars at the same time as her, a little bit before or a little bit after, that were at all envious at the fact that she almost had two personas and one where she could be a little bit more experimental while still maintaining the image that they were forced to have, if that makes sense. Right. Yes. No, it's a lot. I mean, you know how much we go, we go deep when we go into the Disney conversation. It's my favorite conversation to have. The last element of this episode that I want to make sure we at least touch on because it really was such a full circle moment. And I think in a lot of ways, such a representation of how far she had come was when they were reflecting on her performance at the 2020 Grammys when she sang Anyone and you saw she was in that long sleeve white gown. And it just took us back. I remember we reported on this at the time. And even before you heard her talk about what was going on behind the scenes, just watching the Grammys that night and seeing this tear streaming down her face and the emotion that was exuding out of her, it was incredibly evident how much this performance meant to her. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's one of the things they say in the documentary is like, not very many people get to go from almost dead on their hospital bed to performing at the Grammys. So it was as much the ability to be able to perform again, which was something that I think really got her through in her recovery, because it was something that she was looking at saying like, how do I go from this to doing what I love, which is making music? But just the sheer fact that she was alive to be able to do that was a miracle in and of itself. Yeah. And when you kind of heard the way that her friends and those around her were talking about that moment, it really, I think, was viewed almost as a triumph for all of them. And it was one performance, but it just signified so much more. Oh, yeah, definitely. And one of the interesting things that they say also is they were basically saying, because of everything that she's gone through and because of all of the stuff in the media and the news about her, I think at the core of it, people forget what an incredibly talented singer and performer she is. And that night really reminded people that. Well, especially they were saying because her voice got, you know, roughly a two-year break, which it never would have if this had not happened. And so her voice was on a level that I think all of those closest to her had never even heard it reach before. Right. With also paired with the concern that like, because she had hadn't performed in two years, who knew what she was going to sound like? Yeah. No, it was just a really cool 
thing to see, especially that juxtaposed with some of the other really dark moments of the episode. And I loved watching that. I obviously cannot wait till next week because that's when we get the max of it all. And the fact that she meets him and she says, you know, I basically moved him into quarantine with my parents. And so, you know, we have very strong feelings on that. I physically can't wait to watch that part. I am so excited. So I know we're all kind of operating at a different skill level when it comes to makeup. Like I have some friends who they do their makeup and it looks like they got it professionally done. I have others who know nothing about any products. And then I would say I'm somewhere in the middle, like by no means am I very skilled, but I think I can hold my own. And in terms of my everyday, I'm just doing mascara, lip gloss, and maybe a little bit of highlighter on my inner corner. So if I'm only using a few products, I need them to be excellent. And I've recently been very into the Thrive Cosmetics mascara, which I'll tell you about in a second, but just in general, a note on the company. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive, which I just love knowing that I'm buying from a company that does that. And in terms of their mascara, so it's the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. You guys have seen that. It's the viral turquoise tube. I've saw it all over social media before I ever started using it. And it's a unique formula that creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. It's also super easy to remove. So it slides right off with warm water. It doesn't leave smudges. And the ingredients are really nourishing. So they support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. It really just gets the job done. Like you will see what I mean when you try it. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash CBC. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash CBC for 10% off your first order. So it was announced last week that Ariana Grande will be replacing Nick Jonas for season 21 of The Voice. And this is according to OK Magazine. She's making between 20 to $25 million for this season, which is the biggest paycheck ever. Kelly Clarkson makes $15 million just for comparison. And Blake Shelton and John Legend make $13 million per season. So a lot of fucking money. A lot of money there. I mean, all of those salaries are obviously not confirmed, but that's what the research is pointing at. And when Ariana signed on, I think everyone's initial reaction was, she must be getting a fucking bag from this show. Oh, yeah, because it's it's a big commitment. And also, it's just not something that I would have ever considered to be something that she would do. I really, honestly, she's not somebody that I had put in the running for this. Well, I think it's just unusual for somebody who's at the peak of their career to be joining a show like this. It is usually, I mean, like, obviously, you can say Nick Jonas is kind of at the peak of his career, but not really. And Ariana is like a pop star on top of the world. And we've obviously had such big names on shows like this, but it's usually a little bit after the fact that they sign on for these things. So I don't think anybody was expecting that Ariana, who's clearly so busy right now and has so much going on, was going to take time from her schedule to join The Voice. But I mean, once you hear about that paycheck, it's not super surprising, I guess. Yeah. And also, I think that it was a great move for them clearly because it does bring a younger audience just naturally. Not only does it bring a different audience, it's probably going to bring a whole other uh, group of talent who just wants to be there to be able to be coached by Ariana because how could you not be? I mean, I I just think it's crazy. And I actually happen to like watch The Voice sometimes with my mom. And I have to say like, it's a very good show. Oh, it is a good show. I actually saw this article this morning that came out like an hour before we started recording. It was in the New York Post. It was titled... One and done, 
why the voice hasn't produced a big star in its 10 years. It was by Chuck Arnold. And I would like to read a few paragraphs because when I mentioned this to you, you said to me, you know what? That's kind of true. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it. I mean, I guess because it exists as an entity of an entertainment show for one, yeah, for individual seasons. And it's so much about the panel of judges that they have on. But I never, ever thought about like the aftermath of it. And you're so right. Because Idol obviously used to produce megastars and X Factor. I mean, what a time that was. So yeah, I never thought about the people that didn't come from from The Voice. Yeah. Should I read a few paragraphs? I I don't think people will read this article, but I think it's very interesting. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Feel free to fast forward if you don't care. But So once Alison Porter was the last singer standing on the 10th season of The Voice in 2016, she won, as all of the Confetti Douse champions do, $100,000 and a recording contract. But after that pitch-perfect ending on NBC's singing competition Juggernaut, her pop star dreams soon turned into a nightmare. Quote, it was sort of like, I got this record deal, but what do I do now? Porter, 39, who became the first winner for the original voice coach, Christina Aguilera, told The Post. Quote, once you win, they're on to the next season within two months, and you're a has-been. And I was like terrified that I wasn't going to use this momentum to make it in the music business. It was definitely not what I had expected. As a star-making vehicle, The Voice hasn't performed up to expectations. Although the show, now celebrating its 10th anniversary and its 20th season, has consistently been a ratings hit since premiering on April 26, 2011, it has failed to produce a big star yet. While winners such as Cassidy Pope and Danielle Bradbury have had some success, they certainly haven't become household names like American Idol champs Kelly Clarkson and Carrie Underwood, or for that matter, seventh place Idol finisher Jennifer Hudson. Surprisingly, none of the voice winners have gone on to find the kind of stardom that might one day land them a coaching seat in one of those big red chairs that Clarkson, Hudson, and other A-list artists have occupied. Quote, everybody thinks that the person should be set, said Sawyer Fredericks, 22, who won season eight in 2015 when he was just 16, but that's just not the case. So then the article was kind of just talking about the transition and saying that, quote, you still have to prove yourself as an artist because the whole time that you're on the show, you're not singing your own songs said the first voice winner, Javier Colon. But after being on television and having so many millions of people watching, you would hope that you'd at least have a fighting chance. They then get into the record labels. They say, each winner gets that chance through the recording contract with Universal Music Group, including Republic Records, major label home of The Weeknd, Drake, and Ariana Grande, and Taylor Swift's former Big Machine Records for the country artists. But that arranged marriage, as Colon describes it, has been problematic, stifling the careers of some voice winners before they've even had a chance to get started. Quote, I feel like they're trying to cookie cutter every person that comes out of the voice because they think they're all the same, said Fredericks. I don't think they put the time into figuring out what kind of artist I was. And they talked about kind of how American Idol has an age limit, first at 24 and now at 29 to audition, and the voice never had such a cap. And it was saying, quote, I think with the voice not having any age restriction, you know, pop is a young person's game. But the voice seemed to never be so much about trying to find America's next pop star. It was more about the coaches and the camaraderie between them. It was as much about that and the inherent drama in the contestant's journey as it was about necessarily finding someone who's going to have a number one hit year after year. And just going on to talk about the reality television stigma of it all, but I don't know. I thought it was just an interesting read. I don't know if you have more comments because you're more of a watcher of it than I am. Yeah, I was just thinking about it. I mean, I'm not a huge watcher of it. I watch when I'm home with my mom. She watches. I was just thinking about the fact that like, there's, I think so much of it has to do with the audience difference between you know, the way American Idol used to work and the way the voice works now in terms of who's watching it. Because 
Idol was a fucking moment. I mean, for those seasons, there was not one single person that wa- wasn't watching American Idol. You would walk into school the next day and it would be all anybody was talking about. It. Every single person in America sat down, watched that show, called in a million times for who they wanted to win. And that was a huge part of why people were so successful after is because the traction carried. I mean, you were so excited and not just for the people that won, for the people that lost that you were like, what the fuck happened? I mean, Jennifer Hudson, you followed her entire career because you couldn't believe how scorned she was by the fact that she didn't win American Idol. And I think the thing with The Voice now is that even though they aren't even though they have a massive audience and they obviously have so much money behind the show, it doesn't have that same widespread appeal and audience that Idol had. And I think that if The Voice did, then the pressure on them to make these people into megastars because everyone would have their favorite and everyone would have the person that they were most looking out for, especially after the show continued, that person would then have probably more of a trajectory for success. It, it is so interesting now that I'm thinking about it because I think the audience element of a show like this is the single most important part. And what they were saying in this article is that like the most important part of the voice hasn't become who the person is. It's become the panel of judges. And that is, I think, maybe part of the downfall of the show. But something that Ariana can do is she can definitely tune into a much wider audience and have people from a much different demographic tuning in to watch her specifically that maybe the people who are then performing will benefit from that audience widening. Yes. The audience widening and also the audience kind of like emotional investment because it is just more prominent in the younger generation to feel that sense of like, even when it comes to social media and just serious investment and involvement. And so potentially that can almost have a more far reaching effect to not just her, but then also to the people on her team. And maybe by virtue of that, just getting more eyes on the screen to then have that same investment in other people, other contestants that aren't even on Ariana's team, but they wouldn't have been watching them in the first place if she didn't exist. Yeah, I think what I think what Ariana needs to be able to do for The Voice this season is what happened during that season of X Factor when Khloe Kardashian was the host and Britney Spears and Demi were on the panel and it was Carly Rose Sonnenclair, B Miller, Fifth Harmony, Emblem Three. If Emblem Three, if Emblem Three is single, like any of you, I will literally put my number in this description. By the way. <laughs> Like that is what the voice needs. And that is just such a recipe for success. But at the same time, X Factor never had a season like that again. The second we're finishing this podcast, we're putting on Chloe by Emblem 3. Stop. Don't even. Now I'm like, I have like butterflies thinking about Emblem 3. (laughs) (laughs) I know you do. And that's such a relatable thing. That's that's a, a meme of like. Uh, shaving before you go to the Jonas Brothers concert. That's similar vibes to Emblem 3. Literally shaving before you watched Emblem 3. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that is so true. No, you're right. I don't know. I'm curious to see what happens. I guess the point that I was interested in making and discussing the Ariana of it all is like, yes, of course, the fact that she's joining is a big deal and I'm very interested in her salary and interested to see her you know, interactions with the different du- judges. But really, the, the conversation really here is how will she shift the audience, not only in demographic, but also in involvement. I can't wait to see. 
Me too. Well, we will watch that unfold. And anything else you want to mention or should we get into the Travis Barker of it all? Oh my God. I thought you'd never ask. So I'm a big fan of transparency across all aspects of life. Like generally speaking, there's pretty much nothing I wouldn't rather be told straight up. But specifically when I'm buying something or paying for a service, I just want to know what I'm getting myself into. And oftentimes there can be so much nonsense or so much yada yada. For example, sneaky terms hidden in the fine print of contracts or bills that randomly go up without properly alerting you or budget airlines with cheap fares, but then exorbitant fees to make up for it elsewhere. And we just should not need to be dealing with this type of yada yada in our lives. And yes, you could read every single word of every single contract and that's one way of avoiding it. Or you can go with a trusted brand like Metro by T-Mobile that helps you to get ahead and not pull you back. That's right. You don't take yada yada from life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and not a yada yada, which honestly gives so much peace of mind. Like you shouldn't have to compromise for an okay option with sacrifices when you really deserve that full transparency. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Okay, this is about to be a Travis Barker heavy Kardashian recap. I just want to put that out there to start off because before we even get into Easter, we absolutely need to talk about Alabama Barker's TikTok of I'm passing the phone. If you have not watched that, I'm going to put the link in the description. It is absolutely imperative and required viewing. So pause this, go watch that, and then come back. Although I have to imagine that most of you have seen it because cinematic motherfucking genius. Uh, Yeah. And this time you're saying that, not an over-exaggeration. At all. Not in the slightest, you guys. I cannot believe we're getting this. I'm freaking out about every different aspect because it is so unbelievable that Courtney is dating somebody that has teenage kids who are so heavily involved in social media to the point where we're getting more content than we could have ever bargained for because this is the way that they express themselves in general. And then it just so happens to be a Courtney and Rain feature. More than the behind the scenes stuff, which obviously is amazing and and is definitely plays a role in the point that I'm trying to make, the thing that's most interesting to me is to watch these two families come together. I think it is very rare that we've ever seen this type of like celebrity children coming together. And as a family, it reminds me very much of J-Lo and A-Rod's kids. Obviously, they're not at the same extent yet because they haven't been dating as long, but they've been friends for a while. They've known each other forever. So to watch them all together was like, I I think for me, it was the first time where I was like, they can't just break up and have everything be okay. Like now the kids are really involved and they're really involved with each other. Yes. And the thing is though, I mean, let's not forget the kids have been involved with each other. They've been friends. Landon and Mason were making TikToks way before we knew that Travis and Courtney were officially dating. So it's as if that only kind of intensifies this, but the relationship was pre-existing, which we can't forget. No, of course, but it was it's the intensity of it now that's different. I mean, the kids are obviously well, obviously Travis's kids are older, are really aware of what's happening and they seem so so on board. And Penelope and Rain seem very on board now too, but they're younger. So it's a different dynamic and a different understanding of like, these people are kind of like going to act like your siblings now. I can't handle it because I 
can't stop thinking about, I know this isn't what I should do. And this really goes against my beliefs in my own life and what I try to communicate with my friends. Cause it's like live in the moment. There's so much power in that. Yet here I am just thinking about what this holds for the future because it just seems to be progressing. Not even, it's not the quickness of it that I even want to discuss because I don't know that we know enough about the timeline to make that assertion. It's more so the level of seriousness that it seems to be progressing with really does just make me have a one-track mind about the future. Me too. I mean, when Courtney said I'm passing the phone to my boyfriend, I don't know why, but that just caught me off guard. Like I know they're dating. I obviously know they're dating. They're together in Aspen with their families. But when she said to my boyfriend, I was like, what is going on here? Can I tell you why? Because I had the same reaction. She hadn't said it yet. Not only has she not said it with him, think about Eunice, for example. We knew for a 100% fact that they were together. There was no doubt about that. They were posting photos. I don't believe that she ever referred to him on video as her boyfriend and definitely not in a way where she's speaking directly to the camera into her phone, maybe in an interview. She never says my boyfriend in general. Yeah. Here's what I think it is. That entire family operates with such a level of ambiguity as it applies to what they will outwardly communicate about who they're dating. So when Courtney distinctly says my boyfriend, even though we know that she is confidently dating Travis Barker, it does take us by surprise because they don't normally name it. It's normally like, well, maybe they're together. It's, it's a constant guessing game. As fans of the Kardashians, you are constantly in this cycle of guessing. And so when they confirm it in that way, you do kind of have that moment of like, oh, Oh, shit, even though you knew. Right. There's just something about hearing her say it, seeing them all together, the dynamic of the family. Like I I couldn't get over it. The dynamic of like just Alabama and Penelope together on their own, rain at the end swearing and like being like the crazy little kid. I just it was crazy. Do you think that Mason is with Scott right now? Well, I don't know because Scott is with Amelia for Easter, which I want to talk about in a second. So can we put a pin in this? Because I want to finish this before we get to Easter because I have, obviously have a million questions and a million things to say. But what makes you think Mason is with him because he wasn't in that TikTok? I just haven't seen any pictures of him. I didn't see any pictures of him on the ski trip. And I didn't see any pictures of him from Easter. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But Rain at the end of that video was hilarious because he you can tell he really gives them a run for their money. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And even in that episode of um, Keeping Up the Kardashians last week when Kendall was babysitting and, you know, she like survived the Psalm Chicago true of it. They were like, listen, we'll put you with Saint and Rain and you'll it'll be the best birth control of your life. Yeah, I think that they know Rain is just out of control in the best way possible. I mean, he's adorable. But I think also for Courtney, she probably is more lenient with him than any of the other ones because, or than she was with any of the other ones. Not that she was ever super strict, just because it's her baby, you know, it's her last, presumably her last time being a mom. Yeah. That's, that's the youngest child for you. That is a universal phenomenon. Yeah. But I'm saying specifically with Courtney, because like being a mom is so a part of her identity and you know, you know what I mean? No, I know exactly what you mean. I'm just saying like that youngest child leniency and and wildness I think is so, so universally relatable, especially if you're the older sibling watching how the younger sibling gets treated. 
Yeah. And then I think also on top of that, it just happens to be that Rain's personality is incredibly charismatic. He really is like a riot. Also, the fact that, you know, Atiana, who is Travis's stepdaughter, technically, right? Yes. That is my favorite dynamic. Okay. So for anybody who's unaware, Travis's kids, meaning Alabama and Landon, are from his marriage to Shanna Mokler. Shanna had a kid with the boxer, Oscar De La Hoya. Her name is Atiana. She's 22. She was on this trip with them in Aspen and also was in Palm Springs, which we can talk about in a second. But that's like a whole other level because that's not even Travis's blood. Right. We knew that her and Travis had a very incredibly, incredibly close relationship. I think the first time we were privy to what the relationship between her and Courtney was, was it was her birthday, I think a week or two ago, and Courtney had gotten her a Prada bag and they both posted on their stories, whatever. And so we were like, oh, that's really interesting. The relationship extends to Courtney. And then all of a sudden, she was on the Aspen trip and then she was in Palm Springs. And to me, obviously, I love the dynamic of her stepfather staying so close to her. I think that is such like an amazing, beautiful thing. But to spend the holiday with your stepdad and his new girlfriend and her family is the most interesting dynamic I could possibly ever think of. Yes. And my thing is it's not coming from a judgmental place. I'm genuinely kind of just like overtaken by curiosity about what the conversation was with Shanna, if it was expected, if, you know, Shanna's priority is that she's with her siblings, meaning Atiana's with her siblings. And so that's why she wanted her to be with Travis's kids because those are her half siblings. Like, or if Shanna has any level of bitterness, because we know she doesn't, or at least in the past, has not thought so highly of the Kardashians. Because if you guys remember, I don't know if we ever posted this comment or we just found it, but a while ago, like two years ago, somebody had commented on Shanna's photo of Atiana saying she looks like a Kardashian. And Shanna basically replied saying like, please don't say that I'm not fond of that family. So now it's like, scratch, like, what is it? Freeze frame. (laughs) Scratch record, freeze frame. Yeah. Like how the fuck did we end up here? I I don't know how the fuck we ended up here, but I am, I, again, this is one of those scenarios where I need every single person to just sit down and say, here's what happened from start to finish. Here is what our relationship was like with the family before. Here's what Atiana's relationship with Travis was like before. Here is the Travis and Courtney element. Here's how it happened. And here is how we got to the place where we're all on vacation. I need each person of the family to tell their own story from their own perspective. It would be so simple. It really would be the simplest thing to film. We sit everybody down in Chris's Palm Springs house on that swing. We shoot a five to 10 minute confessional, literally just explaining the timeline. And then at the end, giving room to explain their feelings, thoughts, and emotions on it. And then we move on to the next person. We could have this done in one hour and it would answer so many questions. We'll never get it, but goddamn, that's my dream. It's my dream. I know. I just want information. Like the thing that I think people don't realize sometimes, like celebrities don't realize, is that not everybody is out there seeking drama. Everybody just wants to be accurately informed. That's all you could ever want. Well, that's what happens is that when you're not accurately informed, people just run with their own narrative. And then what I always find to be interesting, if I'm being honest, is celebrities who come forward and say like, 
I don't know how it ended up being this. Like, I don't know where you guys got your information from. And I'm not saying that celebrities owe us transparency in anything that they do. But if you're not being transparent with what happened, you then have to have the understanding that people are going to attempt to fill in those gaps by themselves. Right. Exactly. I mean, you're right. Nobody owes the public anything. I think it's a little bit different when you're a Kardashian. I guess the Barkers are different because they didn't sign up for this. When you're a Kardashian, it's a little bit different because you have opened the public up into every single aspect of your life. So randomly not sharing does feel a little bit weird. Again, they're not required to, but I can understand the public feeling a way about that. But for most A-list celebrities, you have to anticipate speculation. Right. And don't you find that that's such a common trend where people will put out a statement and celebrities will put like a blank thing on their Instagram story being like, just to clarify, and I don't know how this narrative got to this place. And it's like, yes, you do know how the narrative got to this place. There was information missing. You didn't fill in those gaps. And people ran with their own story because they they felt that hole that they wanted to fill. So I... If a celebrity doesn't come forward and doesn't explain, but also doesn't get annoyed by the fact that people are running with their own thing, then it's like, fine, that's one thing. But when you then get annoyed that people have made up their own story or their own narrative, obviously within reason, I'm not saying that like for things to get out of control the way we were just talking about with Demi, but like when people start making up like who they think you're dating or how they think that happened and you get annoyed with them for doing that, it's like, listen, you can't blame them. I just think that the public are so deeply interested even when the interest level should probably not be that high. So I guess for me, it's like, what do you expect? Right. Right. And and yeah, I mean, I, when it's not rooted in maliciousness or there's no malintent, then it is even more understandable as to why people just want answers because it's it's human nature to inherently want answers to your questions to be filled. And so when they're not filmed, you're going to make up your own story. And a lot of times it's not negative. It's just as a way to kind of secure the plot or to tie up some loose ends. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. Have you ever noticed how celebrities have brighter, whiter looking eyes? Their makeup artists have a little secret in their kit. Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute. It literally happens right before your eyes to help them look brighter, whiter, and more awake for up to eight hours. No wonder it's so loved by influencers, celebrities, and makeup artists, and has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. Lumify is also the number one eye doctor recommended redness reliever eye drop, and it's FDA approved. No bleach, no dyes, plus it's made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb. So whether you're on set, on a date, or running on just a few hours of sleep, you can have eyes that look brighter and whiter with Lumify Eye Drops. When you try it, you'll see that it's what your eyes have been looking for. Check out lumifyeyes.com to learn more. So then they're all in Palm Springs for Easter and Chris, of course, goes all out the whole nine and she gets all of them, their individual Callaway golf set. And she Instagrams it and she makes the caption, happy Easter. And thank you, Callaway golf, Irving Azoff for making our Easter so special. And thank you for Corey Gamble, Tristan Thompson, Travis Scott, Travis Barker that are already on the golf course. LOL, hashtag impatient. Travis comments, happy Easter. Thank you. So what we were told from that entire thing, one, there was no West in Kim's. It was just Kim Kardashian, no West. Second of all, Scott wasn't there and Kanye wasn't there. And third of all, Scott was in 
Miami with Amelia, which we found out from her posting Happy Easter with him and her on the beach. So what the fuck is going on? No, what the fuck is going on? Is that not – is it just me or is it a little bit off that Scott would not spend Easter with them? It was the first time in all of this where I felt like something was off between Scott and them. Is there any legitimacy that are we doing exactly what we just talked about three minutes earlier? Well, first of all, we talked about three minutes earlier is that you can't blame people for doing that when you don't have a narrative. <laughs> okay. You don't have the facts behind a narrative. So yes, we are doing that, but within reason because when you're used to seeing Scott spending every single holiday with them and you're used to Scott not for one second wanting to miss an opportunity with the kids, and I'm not saying that's what's happening here. I'm just saying for him to not be there, it leaves you with a question mark. Well, also because – It's very easy for somebody, if you know nothing about this, to be like, well, of course he wouldn't be there. Courtney's there with her new boyfriend. But then you have to remember, Scott and Sophia would hang out all the time with Courtney around. So that's not like their rule here. It's not like that is kind of the golden rule that when one of them is with someone, the other person doesn't interact with them. That's why this does feel different. Right. And again, back to the point, I don't believe I saw any pictures of Mason. So maybe Mason is in Miami with Scott. I don't know, Julie. This is so overwhelming. It's really, it is really hard. I've said this a million times, but it's like, I'm beaming for Courtney. I love this. She feels over the moon. Somebody messaged us last week and they were like, you couldn't find the word that you were looking for. And the word that you were looking for, for Courtney was in love. Cause I was saying, she just seems so serene. She seems so at peace. And they were like, I think the other word you were looking for is in love. And you're right. She definitely seems in love, but it's not even honestly, honest to God. And I would tell you guys, you know, I'm really like honest about how I feel about the Courtney Scott thing. It's not even so much that I'm longing for that. It's more so that the one thing in all of this that I'm unwilling to give up or sacrifice is the way that I feel Scott's standing is with the family. So I can get over them ever being together fine, but I can't ever get over Scott basically being another child of Chris's. So not that anything weird is going on, but even for one second when it perks your ears, you're like, wait a damn minute. Right. You get concerned that there is – that there's something wrong. I mean, I don't know. I, I, It was definitely the first time where I was like, something's not 100% right here. And I understand like – first of all, I guess you could technically say like this isn't Scott's holiday, quote unquote. Like he is Jewish. He's not – it's not like – his it's it's probably not internally like his Easter is suffering because he's not celebrating it, but it does seem weird to me that he would not be with his children and the entire family that he considers his family on a holiday that he knows is at least super, super important to them and that they go all out for every year. Also, why was there no golf set for him? I guess because he wasn't there. I hate this. I hate it too. But then again, okay, so let's let's reframe our thinking for a second. If in this moment we are focusing on Scott, what's more painful for him? Not being there based on his own choice because there's no worlds in which he wasn't invited in my opinion or being there and watching Courtney be so intimate and so in love and so intertwined with her new boyfriend's family somebody that could be her future. Where as we know, yes, Scott also has somebody, but it's kind of like, you're not going to bring a knife to a gunfight. You're not going to bring Amelia to Travis Barker. 
both of those scenarios for me to envision Scott in is like incredibly painful. Like my heart genuinely hurts trying to picture him deciding between either of those two things. Right. It's it's That's a terrible situation. Or let me just throw in a third option here. Couldn't you very much see, let's say they were filming season 21, which they're not. Hypothetically speaking, if they were, couldn't you a thousand million percent see Courtney saying, you know, it's like, I'd never want to take Scott's time away from the kids or from the family, but I do think that we have to set boundaries. And it is a little bit uncomfortable for me when I'm there with my new boyfriend and his whole family and my ex is there. Like, I do think that we need to have some level of separation. I don't think that's the craziest thing ever. I know we don't want to believe it. And I'm going to choose to believe that that's not the case. I just don't feel like we absolutely have to write it off. No, I don't. I'm so torn because it's not that I think it's the craziest thing ever. It's that I think that I'm so heavily invested in this family that I feel like the genuine emotions of what could be happening or what I have in my head happening. And the thought of Courtney saying like there has to be some sort of a boundary that then results in Scott not being able to be as close with the family that has been his entire family after losing his entire family is like next level heartbreaking. Right. Okay. I so agree. Like I can't even tell you how much I'm on your page. So I would like to break that down a little bit further. Let's go from there and to say, maybe these are all, by the way, completely hypotheticals. I don't even know if I believe any of this. I'm just trying to go with a lot of ways of thinking. So don't get too defeated here. Okay. Okay. I'm like obviously upset. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Well, because it's not. I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to everybody else. The all hundreds of people that DM'd us heartbroken about this. Let's just say, what if going with the theory that Courtney maybe broached the subject? If she said, "Listen, it's not a forever thing. It's just right now, as we're all getting acquainted, and it's really the beginning of our relationship. Maybe that's important." And we need a little bit of that space just in the earlier phases, hypothetical. I don't think that's the truth, but let's say, or maybe Scott took it upon himself to know that it would be too painful for him. And so while he's still warming up to the idea, he felt like he needed to do it for himself. That feels like it didn't come from a sad or a bad or an angry place. It's like, you know what? I'm just going to sit this one out. Right. And I... And I understand that. And I think that is probably what happened. Like if I had to guess the scenario, it was it was Scott saying that he was just going to stay in Miami because he didn't want to be there with everybody. And maybe Mason's with him. So he at least gets to be with one of them during the holiday. I, I just think what it is, is the entire time that we have spoken about Courtney and Scott and the possibility of them getting back together and not getting back together the comforting thought that was always there was like, at least Scott will always have his place in the family. Like it is so cemented because of the way that they all feel about him outside of Courtney. So for him to not feel comfortable enough to go and put up with Courtney and Travis is first of all, like, how do you explain that to your current girlfriend that you're so in love with your ex-girlfriend and the mother of your children that you can't even stand to be in a room with her and her her new boyfriend. Again, this is all hypothetical. We don't know if this is what actually happened. And B, how do you like, after all of this time, just say, I'm going to remove myself from the situation because I'd imagine that the rest of the family would then be upset too. I imagine that Chloe and Kim and Chris would be heartbroken by the fact that Scott couldn't be there with them or didn't want to be there with them for his own benefit. 
Yeah, exactly. I know that that's how I, that's what I'm saying. It's really, I'm trying to like rationalize this and it could literally be nothing. It could be Easter is not something that's that important to him. As we know, clearly he's Jewish. It's not something that he ever considered as, you know, uh, a monumental holiday within their family. And he wanted to be in Miami and it worked out well anyway. And he had business he had to get done down there. And that could be as simple as it, but it's hard for me to not kind of spiral and go down this rabbit hole of what could be the case because the other thing is like, there's no equivalent. It's not like Courtney is saying, well, you know what? When Scott is in a new relationship, I'm going to be respectful of that. And I won't go around him and his family things because they're getting warmed up. It's like, no, this is the only family thing here. This is the, this is his only family. This is the only definition of family that is involved in any of their lives. So it's basically like, it's his whole life. Yeah. I I have to know what the details of what is happening because obviously we like didn't intend on spiraling and we just spiraled into like a whole scenario where Scott is no longer like involved in the family in the way he once was. And I just like can't accept that to be the truth in any way, shape or form. That's not the case. That is not the case. I'm telling you, there's no world in which that is the case or the case permanently because he's their fucking father. And that is something that they have prioritized and he's not just going away. So that's not it. I do think though, at the very least where I'm going to land on this is that there's some aspect of Travis being there on this holiday that caused some separation, whether it was Courtney's doing, whether it was Scott's own doing or something in between, that is the only difference, unless he had some sort of a business thing where he couldn't be there. It's not a permanent thing. It's not a permanent restructuring. Everything will be the same. It's just in this infancy of their relationship, we're starting to get more serious. Maybe there needed to be that boundary. I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's keep our eyes out for the next remaining holidays. Let's keep our eyes out for Mother's Day, Father's Day, Memorial Day, July 4th, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. But just to make it very clear, I don't think I'm I'm confident in saying Scott's not going anywhere. I don't think Scott's going anywhere either. That's not what I meant. Obviously, he is their dad. Obviously, he's going to be around a lot. I just mean that if the structure of the family is the way we've known it for the past X number of years, and since they've had kids and since Scott has, you know, really worked on himself and been such an integral part of this family, even after the breakup, if that dynamic is even slightly being altered... That is something that I can't accept. I know. I know. We are really allowing no room for change, which is so unfair to Courtney because she should be able to proceed with this relationship in whatever way that she feels is best for her. It's just a hard thing to kind of come to terms with. And I would imagine that the rest of the family is feeling the same way. I don't think this is like an outlandish way to feel. And it's definitely not because of the hundreds of people that were DMing us being like, I fucking love Travis. It's nothing against him, but I do feel sad for Scott. I would do anything right now. If there is one person that I could talk to about this, I would text Chloe. Same, same. I would do anything to be able to text Chloe. Because she probably also knows the most. And would spill the most. Yeah. Oh, well... I don't know. We'll keep you guys posted on that. Clearly, as you can tell, we waited our entire lives to talk about this Easter. I can't believe we spent so much time on that. <laughs> I'm so glad we did. But now I'm all worked up. I need to watch like 10 episodes of The Nanny to calm down. Mr. Sheffield to do that to you, you know? Oh, yeah. I'll do other things as well. <laughs> I was going to say calm down or work my blood pressure right back up. 
<laughs> okay, well, we love you guys so much. We'll see you on Thursday for Kardashian bonus show. And Isabel and I will see you on Friday for Bravo. Thank you, everybody that listened to that Jen Shaw episode because that was a ride. We love you guys so much. <laughs> 